As uh, the guys are going through to uh, collect tithes and offerings, if you'd also turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6 is where we will be this morning. Make sure this is working. We're good. Well, I hope that you have enjoyed the stories of Daniel. I have had a blast talking about them. I think it's a great book. I I love it. They're so much fun. And the the funny thing about the stories that we have going on in the book of Daniel is that these stories are about people of conviction, uh, deep, deep conviction. If we think about all the ways in which Daniel has risked his life over the past several weeks, uh, he refuses Nebuchadnezzar's food which is generally not something you should do. You never refuse the emperor of the world, right? Bad news, don't do it. He refuses the emperor's food. The emperor has a dream, and then he shares the meaning of the dream with the emperor. Hey, guess what? Your kingdom's gonna gonna crumble and and, and become dust. He, uh, we we see uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, these guys, they're, they're risking their lives by not bowing down before the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And then Nebuchadnezzar has another dream, and Daniel puts his, his life at risk again, saying, well, this dream means that you're going to go insane and start eating grass like a cow. Good times, right? Have fun. And last week we saw King, uh, Daniel confront King Belshazzar and say that God has numbered, he has weighed, he has measured, and you will be divided. In all of these stories, we have these conviction people who believe in God so deeply and value truth so much that they're willing to stake their lives on God. Whether he preserves their lives in this life or moves them on to the next, they seem to be firm and fixed And what's interesting about all of this is that we share these with our children. I mean, think about the the Bible stories. Those of you who grew up in church, think about the Bible stories that you know. Daniel in the lion's den. I mean, I don't even have to read that text to you, and I bet most of you could give me most of the details out of this story. And what a bizarre story to, ch- to tell children. Let me tell you story, a story about this guy who becomes a human sausage. Fantastic. This is what we should draw in our picture Bibles, right? here. Look at this picture, kids. He's about to go to the lions. Yay! I mean, it's, it's a bizarre thing. It's bizarre, too, because I don't think we really like people of conviction. I mean, I, I know we like stories about people of conviction. We like to tell them, oh, remember that brave guy or that brave gal, those people who stood up for what they believed in. We love the stories about them, but we don't like them in our midst because when they're in our midst, they confront us with our own weaknesses. They show us where we pull back, where we're too afraid to go, where we stay silent, and they push forward, and we say, that guy, I don't like that guy so much anymore. It's interesting, Uh, Jesus is speaking in in Luke chapter 11, verse 48, 48, and he says to the people who are standing around him, all of these people, these good church-going folks like y'all, and he says, woe to you, woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed, and you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your father, for they kill them, and you build their tombs. These people who are, are religious, good, you know, good, solid church-going folks, they're, they're quoting Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah, these people that their, their fathers persecute to the point of death. And here's Jesus, a greater prophet than all of them, and what are they about to do to him? See, we don't like people of conviction in our midst. 
It's a dangerous thing. And I noticed as I read that text, as I was thinking about Daniel and Jesus, I noticed that Jesus doesn't go after sinners in this, does he? He goes to the righteous people. And he says, woe to you. Woe to you. For you quote the prophets, but you sure don't live like them. And that's a, that's a convicting thing for me. And I guess maybe the moral of the story is, first of all, be careful who you crucify. You might end up making a mistake. And we mean this verbally as much as physically because please don't crucify anybody, right? But verbally we do this all the time, a la social media. And I think of Philippians 4 or 5, which has sort of been a mantra of my own uh, lately, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Let me say that again. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, for the Lord is at hand. And let that be the guiding thing for your tongue and for your hands when you happen to be out there where decency and decorum go to die. I think the other lesson might be that if we are going to step upon the path that leads us to God, the path that Daniel treads before us, and the path that Jesus himself treads, it's this, expect to run into conflict. Expect to run into a lion's den, a fiery furnace. Expect to be led to a cross because the way to God is not smooth and easy. And I just want to say that here today because I don't feel like we hear that enough. Even though we know it's true, don't we? Is being a Christian like the easiest thing you've ever done? No, right? No, it's not. It is, however, the greatest thing we've ever done. This leads us to a question, I think. And, and, this, and I want this sermon, as we're, we're wrapping up the series, this is the last story that we're going to be going at in Daniel. So this is the last uh, week we'll be talking about this. And I want this sermon to be a series of questions for you. I don't want to answer those questions because I feel like if I give you the answer, then you can put it in your back pocket and go home feeling full and fancy free, right? I don't want you to feel that way. I want to force the questions into your lives so that you have to look at one another and ask the question, how are we going to live this out? I mean, when I read Daniel, I don't get a bunch of solutions. I get a bunch of problems. Because I look at Daniel and I say, man, that guy is amazing. He's fantastic. I mean, he's not afraid to go into this lion's den. He's not afraid of anything. He's just stepping out in faith. And the question is, where am I holding back? And sometimes I can't answer that myself. Hence the church, right? And this is why we need each other. This is why we have our small churches, our small group ministries. This is why we, we marry people that are better than us. This is why we engage in conversation. Because... Easy answers lead to easy lives, and that looks nothing like Daniel, let alone Jesus, right? So my question to you as we begin this process is the question of, when was the last time you stepped out in faith? When was the last time that you risked something for Christ? I mean, I I got this this week. I was thinking about Emery and how she looks at me. And man, she just watches everything, doesn't she? I've learned this as I've been fixing things around our new house. She watches everything and hears everything, right? So be careful what you say, for the little ears are picking up on it, you know? And she's watching me, and and as much as we want to say, well, then don't, you know, be a bad person because your kid's going to pick up on it. I'm not so worried about me being a terrible person, and so Emery goes out and becomes a terrible person. I'm worried that she sees an easy life. I'm worried that she looks at daddy and says, 
You know, being a Christian, that's not that much different than anything else. It's not that hard. I can do that. When was the last time you risked something? When was the last time you risked something for Jesus? We read in Daniel 6 as we open up this story. It pleased Darius in Daniel 6 verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps. That's wise men, counselors, uh, governors. And they're throughout the whole kingdom. And over this are three officials. So there's three people who are over all this 120. And one of them is Daniel who is advanced in his age by now. He has survived the fall of Jerusalem. He survived the kings of Babylon. And here he is now a high counselor in Darius, in the Persian court. And we read that while Darius really seems to favor Daniel, he looks at him and says, man, this guy is is gold. I need to keep him around. The other guys around him, not so much, right? Not so much. And in verse 5 of of Daniel 6, we might see the reason for that, but we certainly see what they feel about him. The men are gathering around and they say, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God, that stinking goody two-shoes, right? Because holiness doesn't make you popular. It makes you strange, Right? It makes you stand out. It makes you um, a target sometimes even. So in your place of work, in your place of business, in your life, before your children, before your grandchildren, is, is walking in holiness a priority? And what does that mean that you need to cut out of your life so you can walk that way? Talk that way. Man, that just, I just fell into the stones in my brain. Daniel excelled. I mean, he was righteous, but it doesn't seem that he is intentionally successful. It just, Daniel happens to be in these positions, and he, and he just gets into this, this place of, of success. And I think that that strikes against the way that we often hear Daniel talked about in popular media, because we have these positive-thinking gurus. We have these health and wealth gospel preachers. We have even Rick Warren, who's kind of considered somewhat of a conservative, writing a terrible book called The Daniel Fast, saying, let's look at Daniel for keys to success. Well, what does success look like for Daniel? It looks like a pit full of lions. Where's that book? Where's the book that says if you're going to pick up uh, the cross and follow Jesus, a cross is what people die on. Like that's, where's the book that confronts our idolatry? Because I guarantee you each and every one of us, including me in this room, we have an idol on the pedestal that needs to be knocked down. What are the sacred cows in our lives? And, and why are we not being thrown to the flames anymore? Like these questions, that's, that's the book that I want to see because when I read Daniel, that's the Daniel that I see. The outcome of his success is fire and flame and God's preservation on the other side of it. So if I give a nice, and I think this works for all the stories because you know how I love to give nice three-point lessons. It was a joke. This would be my, this is my Daniel book. Throughout the book of Daniel, this is what I see him doing. All of them, they ignore success. Completely unconcerned with success, unconcerned with climbing the ladder, unconcerned with getting the next promotion, unconcerned with all of this stuff. What is their focus throughout this book? And this is so pertinent to our lives because as we've been trying to force 
uh, you to see is that there are resident residents, those people who belong here and they live here and this is their home and this is their priority and this is their loves and there are resident aliens and I'm praying that all of us, including me, will take up the mantle of the alien. The alien is not interested in climbing that ladder. Success is ignored. And in place of that, there is an obedience, a reliance, trust, a faith in God. And beyond that, then, is the fear of nothing. The fear of nothing. So let's look at this. It begins with ignoring success or not caring about the world. The Bible uses the word world all the time. Like, don't love the world or anything in it. And I think sometimes as, as Christians we sort of misread this and we think it means don't care about the people around you and be busy about your own thing or don't care about the environment or you know, who cares about the world itself as a physical entity. This is not what it means when it says world. It's speaking metaphorically. It's speaking about um, the, the things and people that live their lives as though this is it. And if this is it in your life, then what are you going to do? You're going to seek all the pleasure you can. Burn it fast because I'm going to die, right? That's the, the, the focus, of, as we read last week, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those folks who, who focus on that, they, they are a part of that, that world. But this world, all of that stuff, all that is sin, all that is darkness, all that is decay, all that is death, all of that is passing away. And in its place, the people of God and the Son of God will meet in a new heavens and a new earth. And if, if, that, is our, if that is our priority, then success in worldly terms, can't be. I, I remember Jesus saying, you cannot serve both God and money, right? You cannot serve two masters. I mean, even if it's not money, it might be something else. I mean, sex, drugs, rock and roll, I don't know, whatever it is. Whatever it is, you cannot serve two masters. And Jesus doesn't allow us to, to sneak away in any way. He says, listen, I am either Lord or something else is. If you're going to put Jesus first, then this word success takes on a whole new meaning. It takes on a greater meaning. It takes a grander meaning because instead of thinking about the the 30 years of pleasure that I can get between 20, well, that was mean because some of you have passed that. Instead of thinking about this short span of time that I have right here, Right now, I'm thinking about what God's going to do in a hundred and a thousand and a million years. And I get to be a thread in the tapestry that he is making. I get to be a part of that. So what does success look like? It looks like something completely different. It looks like bringing up a child who is kind of like a leech, right? That's just like sucking you dry of money. and Come on, people. You know I'm telling the truth, right? <laughs> of money and energy and emotion. and some, Like the most insignificant thing it seems these days is a stay-at-home mom. She's not earning anything. She's not making anything. She's just at home. She's just at home watching kids, right? That's all she's doing. She is pouring her life into something that will grow up to bring glory to God. What is more meaningful than that? The world looks at that and says, that's insane. That's stupid. Prayer, right? You're, you're, you're doing what? You're praying? Thank you. Like, that's wonderful. But we see that as something different because we see God moving that and making that so that thousands of years later, hundreds of years later, 20 years later, the story that I like to tell is that I had at 12 years old a minister say to me, 
and Laura laughs. She's heard this story a few times. A minister say to me, I am going to pray that you become a preacher. Six years, four years later, just happens that I end up moving to his town. And just happens I end up going to his church. Just happens that I end up being his mentor. Or I being his, he becomes my mentor. <laughs> the other way around. And it just happens that years later, when it comes time for me to go to school, and he says, what are you going to do? What are you going to school do? I was like, well, I want to be a preacher. I said, do you remember the day that you said to me, it was like, it was a, a night service at a, at a like insignificant nothing church. Like if I said the church, you'd say where? Like the town, not where. Um, do you remember that time? And you said you pray for me at noon every day. And he said, yeah, I've been praying all these years. I mean, what's more meaningless than a prayer at noon for a kid who read the wrong verse in the service? <laughs> Which I did, right? What's more meaningless? But we don't see success the same way. It changes. Everything changes in light of Jesus. Everything changes in light of the lion's den. Everything changes in light of Scripture of a God who doesn't just see your life. He sees the lives that came before and the lives that are going to go after you. And he says, you can make a difference that spans beyond anything you can even imagine. You think Daniel thought about you when he went into the lion's den? And yet here you are reading his story being transformed by what we call the word of God. It's incredible. Change the way you see life. Change the way you see the world. See, we are either different, church, or we are lying about who really is our king. And we've got to confront ourselves with that truth. And, and I, I don't want to discourage you. I don't want to make you feel bad or anything or feel guilty or something. But I want to confront you with the real questions that the scriptures are asking, pleading with you to hear. Because in the end, it's not a God who says, boy, you've screwed up too much. I'm done with you. It's a God who says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, your faith. That's your inheritance. That's who you are. And so let the Bible, let me ask you tough questions, and don't shy away from them. If Jesus says the world will hate us, why are they so interested in our votes? If Jesus says, don't love the world or anything in it, why is it that the Christmas season, which, praise God, is rushing upon us, why is our Christmas look just like the neighbor down the street who doesn't believe in God at all? If Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God, why is it that the most difficult thing that I could be asked to do is find volunteers for our nursery and children's ministry? When Jesus says, take up the cross and follow me, what does that mean for you this week? What does that mean for you today? These aren't questions that are meant to make us feel bad. They're questions that are meant to inflame us. They're questions that are meant to make us feel passion. They're questions to draw our eyes to something greater than where you are right now. To fix your eyes on Christ and chase after the glory that he wants to reveal to you and show you and do in your life. But it will always take you outside that comfort zone. It will always take you to a place that is scary. It will always take you to a lion's den. But he says, don't fear there. For there I am with you. 
what would it take for your enemies, or maybe even your friends, to say the only thing that we can blame him about, the only way we can get him in trouble, or her in trouble, is if we find some way to make a rule that contradicts the law of God. What would it take? Which leads us to our second point here. Obey God alone. Daniel makes us plain by his way of life, by everything that he is. It's not something that he flaunts. It's not something he has to talk about even. It's just his life is shaped fundamentally different than everyone else around him. And they say he is committed to God and to God alone, and, 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 and I'm going to obey that. And here you are so much better in such a, so much a better position than Daniel, where you have the Scripture, you have the Word of God in front of you, and you can track it, you can read it, you can follow it, you can get a concordance, you can get an encyclopedia, you can get a commentary. You have so much opportunity to read what God wants and, and find out what God wants and obey what God wants. Why don't we do that? Why is it so hard to just pick it up and spend five minutes, ten minutes reading scripture and saying, how do I live this out? How does this transform me? Obey God alone. In verse six we read, um, the officials, they come to him and they say, O king, Darius, live forever. And all the high officials of the king, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes a petition to any god or man for 30 days, except you, O king, shall be cast into a den of lions. And the king says, Great idea, guys. That sounds great. Which I think sounds terrible, because you notice it doesn't say prayer. It says petition. It's not just, hey, when you get on your knees and pray, pray to the king. It says, no one can ask for any help at all by, to a god or to a man. You, king, are the center for 30 days. Everyone has to come to you. I do not want everyone coming to me with my problem, with their problems, right? I and mean, that sounds awful. But the king is like, I'm the center of attention for 30 days. Sounds great. Let's do this. And what do we see next in verse 10? Verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, and they opened up unto Jerusalem, toward Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, just as he had done Previously, I mean, what's interesting here is that he, he knows this document's going into effect. He knows that this law is going into order. He, he's ready for it. He sees it coming. And what does he do? He goes and he gets in front of this open window. Bad idea. Gets down on his knees and he prays just as he did before. And is there anything less significant than prayer? I mean, prayer seems so insignificant to everyone else. Like, this is what Daniel does. I mean, think about Daniel in this situation. Uh, uh, He's he's one of the three chiefs. I mean, he's he's Darius's favorite. Why why didn't he go and speak to Darius? Why didn't he say, King, this is a bad this is a bad law. You're gonna get me killed. Why didn't he organize some of the satraps? I mean, power loves power. And if you're in a powerful position, you got people underneath you, you can always find some underlings, right? I mean, Congress, Senate, like we know this is a true thing. And so, why didn't Daniel go and do that? Why didn't Daniel step in and and say, Hanani, Mishael, Azariah, hey guys, let's go get a petition going and get some people to sign this because there are some pious people in this kingdom. Sign this petition. Daniel doesn't do any of that. He waits for it to be signed, and then what does he do? 
Instead of invoking everything that we would think people would normally do, he doesn't invoke his own influence, he doesn't invoke his own power, he doesn't try to rally people together. He depends completely upon prayer. 100%. Completely upon prayer. And it looks like such an unsuccessful plan because, as you know, he gets tossed into the lion's den. But what does it prove on the other side of it? It proves the glory of God and there's such a drastic difference then we see here between a resident resident, somebody who has says, stakes their claim and says, this is my life and this is all I've got and I'm going to live it according to my own rules and, and ways of life, and the resident alien who says, I live here and God is blessing us richly and I just cannot wait to see him come in the fullness of his glory and bring his kingdom uh, forever. The difference between the two is that some see action and prayer as completely different things and some see them as intertwined. And we see in Psalm 20, verse 7, I've, I've loved this verse for a long time, some trust in chariots and horses, some trust in the Lord our God. So we see the difference then is the kind of things that we put trust in. We saw last week that De- uh, Belshazzar was putting his trust in his political, economic, and military power. He was putting all of it in what he could do, what he could accomplish, and yet Daniel does exactly the opposite. And I, I found this psalm this week, it was really awesome, and I loved it. And so I thought I'd share it with you. Psalm 112, verses 6 through 8. And it says this, For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. I like that so much. I like that line there too. He is not afraid of bad news. Because we get 24-hour news, and it's all bad, right? All the time. Bad news, bad news, bad news. And yet it says here, the one who is righteous, the one who's fixed himself in the trust, uh, in trusting in the name of the Lord our God, what do they do? What are they like? They're unshakable, and they're unafraid, completely unafraid, because they obey God. And God is their root, their protector, their refuge, their fortress, their shield, their defender. I, I find interesting verse 10. Look at verse 10 again. What does Daniel pray about? Like, what does it say he, he does? It says, he prayed and gave thanks before his God. Now, I don't know about you, but if we get a death sentence that says, hey, if anybody in America prays, we're going to throw him to a lion's den, the last thing I'm going to do is give thanks to God, Right? Be like, God save my skin, I'm about to become a snossage, right? Save me, like do something, like fix this, change the king's mind, do something about this. And yet what does it say here? Daniel gets on his knees and he thanks God, he praises God, he lifts up God's name. Which reminds me of 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Paul says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ for you. Isn't that great? No matter what comes... And this is why I appreciate Chuck so much. And we chatted this week as he did um, the, uh, the communion meditation. Even though he was talking about how much he was struggling throughout our conversation, he praised God despite the pain. Right? And this is the will of God in Christ for you that no matter what comes, whether it's a lion's den or a million dollars, you praise God. You give thanks to him for he is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. And Daniel's example is perfect with this. He is not afraid of this bad news. And what's interesting, too, about Daniel is 
he doesn't seem to badmouth any politicians. And there's plenty to badmouth, isn't there? And he's got plenty to say about those decisions that are being made in the upper echelons of power, and yet he doesn't say anything about it. In fact, he has been so winsome and so humble before Darius that Darius values him above all his other advisors. He is the same way before Nebuchadnezzar, who is the dude that burned down the temple, who carried him off into exile, and Daniel says what to him every time he's respectful. Every time he's hopeful, he says, may this not be true when he has that dream about Nebuchadnezzar being mad, going crazy and eating grass and becoming like a beast. Uh, Daniel says, may this not happen to you. Well, if that's my enemy, I'm saying, I hope it happens to you, right? And yet Daniel is different. It's almost like perhaps Jesus was reading the Bible when he said, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And Daniel does this, and it reminds me of what I read um, Paul saying, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings too, who, and all who are in high positions, not because we owe them anything, not because we owe them priority or allegiance or anything like that, but so that we might live peaceful, quiet, godly, and dignified lives, so that we might be about our business, which is sharing Jesus, and they might be about their business, I mean, um, ordering society. So, what we see here then is a transformation in obedience between God, uh, in, in Daniel, as he obeys God and begins to shape his life in that way. We see this is Daniel's success plan, and in the end, what does it produce for him? A fearlessness. Fearlessness. Fear only God. Of course, the striking part of all of this is the trust that Daniel placed on God. He gets down and he prays. And he prays in the same kind of manner that we see Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah praying in chapter 3 when we're reading that in Daniel and Lion, or in the, the fiery furnace where they speak to um, Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar says, like, I'm going to throw you in a fiery furnace. Don't you, don't you see that over there? Bow down and, like, just do, just follow along, right? And they say, hey, listen, God can save us or God can let us die, but we are not b- bowing down before you. What a fearless thing to say. And I love the fearlessness that we see in Daniel. Immediately, as they, they uh, take the news in verse 14 of Daniel 6, immediately as they take the news to Darius that The king uh, hears the words that Daniel has been praying, and he knows the law. He knows what he has to do. Daniel has to go into the lion's den. In verse 14, it says, The king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. He spent the rest of the day trying to find a way to rescue Daniel. And that speaks volumes about Daniel's integrity and trustworthiness, but nothing can save him. And so into the lion's den, as you know, Daniel goes. And the king is, is distraught, and he can't sleep, and he can't eat, and he tosses, and he turns, and he, he paces, and he waits, and until finally morning comes. The, the, first, the first slice of that morning light comes out, and Darius is running down to the, lion, to the lion's den. They move the rock, and he calls down to the lion's den. Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to save you from the lions? And I feel the story like this pregnant pause. This pregnant pause. Because who could say yes to that? 
And yet through the rocks, through the crevices of the rocks, echo this voice, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions and they have not harmed me. For I was found blameless before him and you know that I have done no harm. What a good story that is. What a great story. No wonder we tell it to our children and yet we invite something dangerous into our midst, into their lives and into our lives when we read this story because it immediately asks the question, what are you afraid of? What do you fear? What holds you back? What keeps you from speaking the truth? What keeps you from sharing Jesus? What keeps you from sacrificing or getting rid of or cutting out of your life those things that you know are keeping you back from following Jesus in the most intense way possible? Are you afraid of your family? Are you afraid of your friends? Are you afraid of your enemies? Are you afraid of your coworkers? What are you afraid of that's keeping you back? Because I see in Daniel uh, uh, zealous, furious, fearlessness, and I want that. Do you want that? Imagine living a life where the only thing you feared was the judgment of God. And what do you have to fear with that? For you've got Jesus, and Jesus has taken it all, borne your sins to the cross, so you're free in his name, and all you have before you is victory if only you put your full faith and life in Jesus. Don't you want that? Imagine a life that is burning with that kind of fire. I want that life. And I think the thing that keeps us quiet is our fear. Because we're afraid of losing our comfort. And I think the devil banks on this, which is why in the book that is most resident alien of all the New Testament letters, in Peter, we're called, Satan is called a roaring lion looking to devour you. He knows that he is a toothless lion, but he can make a lot of noise. And if he makes a lot of noise, he's hoping you will shut up and sit down. And Jesus says, much quieter. Rise up and follow me. I will make you somebody that fishes for people. Make you somebody that shakes the world. I'll make you an inheritor of a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that cannot be broken, that cannot be beaten, that cannot age, that doesn't wither, and I will give you a body to match. And that's good news, right, church? So what do we have to fear? What do we have to be afraid of? What's keeping us back? What's holding us down? What's keeping you from pursuing the life that God has for you? That's the question that Daniel asks me. I think it might be the question that Daniel asks you too. What's interesting about this story that we have here, this last story in the book of Daniel, is it almost feels like a proto-gospel. I mean, think about it. You have a prophet here who is wildly successful, and yet the religious people around him, because they were satraps were also religious leaders, right? the religious people around him aren't a big fan, and so they go to the king and say, hey, let's get rid of this guy. And the king says, no, I don't want to get rid of this guy. And yet because of his commitment to God, they get rid of this guy. That sounds a whole lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Except for there's something significantly different between Jesus and Daniel, and that is that Daniel goes into the lion's den, and God, because he wants to continue to use Daniel, saves Daniel from the lion's den. And yet with Jesus, it was significantly different, wasn't it? The lions bit and tore, and the Son of God bled and died. And it sure seemed like that was the end of the story. 
And yet, as we sing sometimes, up from the grave he arose as a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose the victor. And you know it. Look at that. Like you're filling in the gaps. I was just done. But you keep going. Keep going. Sing it if you want. Right? I mean, we know this story, and yet we still shrink back. We still get caught up by all the busyness, by all the shiny things, by all the temptations and all the worries and all the cares and all the concerns. And Jesus says, and Daniel lives, just follow me. There's a passage that I've been uh, loving all week from First Peter. Actually, you know what? I think I got it. So you have to look it up. There we go. From First Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith. And there it is, the salvation of your souls, of your life. So at the end of all of this, all these stories of Daniel, all these messages, this is overarching word is this you will you give him all will you pour out your life will you endure the trials knowing that at the other side of the lion's den or the fiery furnace or the cross itself you have a waiting for you a crown of righteousness that God the righteous judge will set upon your head and call you blessed forever and ever to sing praises before him in the company of the saints before the living God for all time. Is that you? And if it is, what do you need to lay aside so you can make that more and more and more the center of your life and the center of your heart? We invite you to make a decision this morning. If it's something visible and you need to come down front, you need somebody to pray with you, fantastic. But each and every one of us has something to go. What is that for you this morning? As you fix your eyes on Jesus, as you make him the author and perfecter of your faith, as you look to the inexpressible glory that is to come, would you stand and sing with me?